Hey there, listeners. Welcome to Horror Movie Club, the show where two dudes who aren't quite nerds but not quite noobs choose a horror movie each week to rate and review. I'm Ashvin, and I'm on the phone with Brian. And this week, we're going to be talking about the 2017 British horror film, The Ritual, directed by David Bruckner, written by Joe Barton, based on a novel by Adam Neville, and starring Rafe Spall, Arshur Ali, Robert James Collier, and Sam Trufton. In this film, a group of friends hiking through the Swedish forest come to take a shortcut, which lands them at odds with some sinister forces. If you are new to our show, Brian and I are going to have a spoiler-free discussion at the top of the episode. Then we'll take a quick break, you'll hear some music, then we'll come back, get into the plot, hit the spoilers, and get into our review. Um, Brian, you and I watched this film back in 2018, and actually one of our first test recordings was an episode on uh, this film. So two questions for you. One, do you still have that recording? And two, have you seen this movie since? I don't think I still have that recording. Most of those test episodes are kind of like lost to time, I think, unless you've got them. No, I I thought I I might, but I couldn't find it. Yeah, I actually, I was going through and cleaning some space on my computer and on my cloud drive or whatever and i think i may have accidentally deleted some of the test episodes shoot yeah what they're they're pretty bad i mean (laughs) i don't see any reason to keep them i don't know it could be a collector's item someday like these really bad (laughs) really really bad i mean (laughs) some people torture themselves and go all the way back to episodes one through ten yeah or some people stumble upon those first and leave us a horrible review right but uh, yeah, those are even worse than those early episodes. But yeah, it's kind of uh, fun to come back around. I think this is the only one we've recorded a test episode on that we're now doing for real. Cool. Wow. Yeah, I was wondering when we'd uh, circle back on some of these episodes. So uh, yeah, it begins. It begins. So yeah, I haven't seen it since then. How about you? Same. Yeah. And uh, I remember uh, being pretty excited when we saw it back then. And I was looking forward to, to revisiting it so many years onward. Yeah, five years later, uh, seeing if it still holds up. And it's by a director who we just talked about, uh, David Bruckner. We talked about him in our VHS episode. He did Amateur Night, which uh, I think it was at least one of my favorites in, in that VHS film. What about you? Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, Amateur Night was a, was a fun one. Uh, but has since got on to do this film and The Night House, and a few years ago he put out the Hellraiser uh, remake or reboot or whatever. Um, so we, we've seen a few of his movies. Are, are you a fan of his? I am a fan of his. The only film of his I've seen that I wasn't wild about was the new Hellraiser, but other than that, I'm I'm pro David Bruckner. Yeah, I feel the same. Do you, like across these three or four pieces, I know amateur Night is, is uh, kind of a wild card because that's part of an anthology and a very short film. But uh, do you feel like you get a sense of like his style or see similarities across these films that you can be like, yeah, that's Bruckner? Boy, that's a really good question because they're so different. I feel like they're all pretty different, especially when you throw Hellraiser in there. That's yeah. a totally different movie. That didn't have any... If somebody would have told me it was David Bruckner and I didn't know, I'd have been like, for real? <laughs> yeah. I don't see that many similarities. I want to say kind of an authenticity to the characters, but that kind of goes out the window for me with Hellraiser. So yeah. that's the one 
kind of through line I can see. How about you? I, I feel the same. I feel like Hellraiser, uh, and maybe because that's like a project that was given to him, not necessarily like one, one of, uh, I, not that he wrote um, Nighthouse or The Ritual, but those feel like maybe he had more ownership of those and versus Hellraiser's like this franchise that maybe he had certain other rules he had to play by. But uh, yeah, I, I do think like if you look at Nighthouse, Ritual to some degree, Amateur Night, uh, I, I do feel like the dialogue, uh, there's like a very realistic uh, dynamic between the characters in, in these movies. And uh, I think they also played a strong visual settings, at least this film and Nighthouse. I feel like you can kind of picture uh, where those take place. And there's like a lot of emphasis given to like the surroundings of the characters. Yeah, sure. Good point. Good point. Uh, how do you feel when we learn? Maybe this is a weird question. I feel like oftentimes we see, oh, this director's kind of brought back the whole team, like same composer or similar, you know, DPs or whatever, like a all the people surrounding David Bruckner are kind of all working on his movies together. That kind of gives me a warm, fuzzy feeling when I see that. How about you? Same, yeah. Uh, I, I think it's it's great because it's kind of like like an artist and you know they, they've got a team of people with them and you're, you're going to see some kind of consistency then from that group of people. Uh, does it give you warm and fuzzies because it, like reputationally you think it's like a stand-in for like how good of a person uh, that person might be to work with? Sure, yeah. I just think it's nice that all these people have worked together in the past. They were proud of what they did together. They enjoyed working together. And they're like, hey, like, let's do it again. Could you do that again for me? Yeah. Um, on that topic, Ben Lovett did the music here, who did The Night House, The Signal, Hellraiser. Um, the special makeup effects were done by married couple Josh and Sierra Russell who worked on Southbound and Hellraiser and Nighthouse. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, just a lot of recurring characters like that. So always fun to see. And it starts to give a director more of a feel, even though we just said you can't really tell, like, what is a David Bruckner project. It is easier when they have, like, kind of a collective vision. For sure. It, it just feels a little bit more... It feels more, like auteurish even though that's kind of the opposite of auteurish because it's a group effort but it just makes everything feel that much more tuned into the same wavelength yeah yeah totally um do you i'm actually surprised how rarely we see that i, I feel like maybe every year we'll talk about like two or three films where like you see that like pe the same group of people coming back on, on a film I, I wonder why that doesn't happen like more consistently because it seems like it's easier to just keep working with the same people versus oh this time i'm going to work with a different composer like hope that this other person understands my vision for this film yeah good question i mean it could just be largely due to scheduling issues oh yeah with a lot of in-demand people yeah yeah, I forgot that extends to like cinematographers and DPs and stuff too. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, but yeah, I'm, I'm liking this uh, guy and uh, what we've seen of his uh, yeah in the last few years. Um, hit the cast. Uh, so Rafe Spall, I think that's how you pronounce it, right? That's my guess too. Okay. He has been in a number of films like Hot Fuzz, Prometheus, Jurassic World, Fallen Kingdom. Um, Sam Trufton also has done like Alien vs. Predator. But I don't know if I really recognize anyone here. Uh, did you? No. I, I think the most recognizable face might be Robert James Collier, who plays Hutch because he's in Downton Abbey as Thomas Barrow. Oh, uh, you watched that show? My wife did for a pretty good chunk of time. So I remember him being vaguely familiar to me when I watched this five years ago. But uh. not quite this time because 
I think that show was popular about five years ago. Yeah, so. that show had yeah, such a following. Not real big names here. Yeah, and, and a pretty pretty small cast. Uh, and yeah, as you mentioned, uh, same guy doing the music. And uh, we yeah, we've seen a number of Ben Lovett's uh, movies uh, scores that are scored by this guy, like I Trapped the Devil. Um, he also did Wolf of Snow Hollow, which I haven't seen any of you. I have, yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah. Really hated that movie. <laughs> That's the one. I, I feel yeah. like I'm in the minority. <laughs> yeah, I think I've seen a rant or two from you on that one. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah. I've, I've, I'll rant about it if you ask me. Okay. Uh, good good excuse for us to cover that film. I know people love a good Brian rant. Oh man, I don't even want to. <laughs> All right. Uh, box office pretty small. I mean, this had, a, I, I think, a limited theatrical run in the UK. So it only earned about 1.3 to 1.6 million at the box office. But then it was bought by Netflix for about four point seven million. So uh, yeah, not sure what the budget was, but uh, that, that seems like a hefty price for Netflix to pay for it. Uh, uh, yeah, I wonder why we don't talk about that or why that type of number doesn't come up more often. Like we, we just talked about, like when evil lurks, um, which I guess I don't know if like uh, do you think Shutter had bought that film for a sum or they produced it? So I, I'm not sure how that works. But it, it is weird, like, more often uh, we, we don't, like, seem to have that number on, like, what these uh, streaming uh, platforms are paying for these films. Yeah, I wonder why that is. I wonder if it's just kind of tradition and we haven't really caught up to the fact that a lot of movies aren't released in a box office and then instead their revenue comes from the streaming service that purchases the rights. But it's also a bit more public in... In nature, when it's box office, it's a bunch of theaters. Like, it's not all confined to one company that makes the money off that. Right. Yeah. Uh, which, I don't know. Like, yeah, the, these days it seems more and more outdated to track uh, financial success of a film by the box office. Because, uh, yeah, the, the, the streaming revenue is, is just, like, yeah, becoming much a much bigger part. I think the films. financial success has just gotten way more cloudy, I, I imagine. Yeah. I'm not on the inside of the industry, but... I got to believe it's kind of hard to determine exactly how much money a film is worth. Mm, yeah. Okay. Uh, I bet, though, like these producers or companies that are uh, paying f- for these films, there is like some updated calculation now in like the last 10, 20 years where it's not just based on box office and rentals. They've now included like streaming uh, services and revenues into it. And yeah, I just wanted like kind of what, what that percentage of the total uh, value of the film looks like. Yeah, I'm sure they have some sort of formula of like, okay, this many people watch the movie, that means it's worth this much to us. Yeah. And it's interesting because this came at a time when Netflix was making a lot more original horror films. The past few years, we really haven't brought up many Netflix originals or covered many Netflix originals. Like I want to say around 2019, The Perfection was kind of the tail end of us covering stuff like that. So this is definitely an asset to the service because it's on no other service. Mm, right. Like, I'm not even sure if it's on physical media. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, that was crazy. I remember like October's, you were just, uh, there were, yeah, two or three years where Netflix would just like bombard uh, their platform with like all, all these like horror movies that come out. And, and most of them, I, I feel like a lot of them weren't very good. But then, yeah, you had maybe like two or three standout ones. But you think that's like died down in, in the last year or two? It seems like it. If I mean, if it hasn't died down, they haven't had any or many that have really been hits or that have been very buzzed about. Yeah. Maybe I'm forgetting a, a big one or two, but 
I just feel like there used to be many every year. Like, oh, here's new Netflix original horror movie, and now I'm not really hearing about those. Yeah, I know. I think like the last big ones for me were probably like Bird Box. That was that was Netflix, I think, and uh, yeah, the Fear Street trilogy. I, I liked those, but yeah, I can't think of like any big names that have come out f- after that. I feel like more they've gone into like these series with uh, who's that director that Flanagan? Flanagan, yeah, that's yeah. true. That's where they're all in on horror, right? But yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. Good point about the um, Fear Street. That Fear Street was, stuff. Yeah, that was fairly recent. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No. Yeah. It's fascinating how, how films uh, are making money these days. Um, other background. Uh, yeah. Pretty well received. Seventy four percent Rotten Tomatoes critic score. Audience was a little bit lower at sixty two percent. What else? Do you, you got any other background on this? I think it might be a beloved film by horror fans. This was a rare experience for me where normally when I post on social media, this is what we're covering next week on the show. We've already recorded the episode, but this is a rare instance where we hadn't recorded it yet. So I got to see all the comments flooding in and within like an hour of posting it, many people were like rejoicing that we were covering this. So Mm. I feel it's got its fans. Yeah, that's cool. Cause uh, it's not a, I don't know how like well known of a film it is, especially since it only exists in Netflix, but uh, yeah, I don't, I don't feel like it makes a lot of conversations. Uh, it, it makes its way into a lot of conversations, does it? I think it. I think it gained a lot of buzz okay. within horror circles over the years. Yeah, cool, cool, awesome. Um, it, you know, l- looking back on it, uh, and before I watched this, I was thinking about how similarly their premises to another really good film that we've seen, uh, The Descent. Yes. Just yeah. like, yeah, four or five years. It's so similar, right? Like a group of friends goes through like some, some traumatic thing and then goes on like a, a trip and runs into some problems. It's very similar. This movie's got like three movies where I was like, this is this meets this meets this. And I, <laughs> I don't even want to say them because I think this movie has a couple things up its sleeve that are probably surprises if you don't know what you're in for. Um, and the funny thing is, I like worked out what are the three movies that this is like. <laughs> I went back and found my notes from five years ago, and I wrote the exact same thing. No way. It was kind of funny. Wow, cool. I'm excited to hear what those movies are. Oh. Yeah, I mean, I don't think there'll be any surprises. If you if you stopped and thought for a moment, you'd probably figure them out. <laughs> but that's bad podcasting to listen to Ashvin things. So, yeah, it would be a long stop. <laughs> <laughs> uh, any other background you want to hit? Um, let's see here. The production company, um, is called the Imaginarium, which was founded by Jonathan Cavendish and Andy Serkis, who plays Gollum in the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Oh, cool. I didn't know he was uh, in that production. Oh, that was a, a fun fact. Yeah. Um, let's see. Shot by Andrew Schulkind. And, oh, by the way, this was a request from Jordy McGibbs and Bryceicles. So thanks guys for requesting this. What else do I want to say about this movie? Oh, there's some other background that is a little spoilery if we're deciding, hey, we don't want to mention that aspect of the movie yet. Oh, another fun fact. One of our other test episodes was the original Wicker Man. Mm -hmm. And the original Wicker Man was also based on a novel called Ritual. Oh, wow. Which is fun. I mean, this was based on a novel called The Ritual. Mm -hmm. But yeah, interesting similarity there. Yeah, random. Cool. Very random. Uh, that's about all I have uh, that I wanted to mention. Should I should I go on to the Ohio Connection and then we can start spoiler mode? Yeah, let's do it. All right. Our Ohio Connection, as always, comes from our friend Alex, who connects every movie we watch to our home state of Ohio for us. 
Alex owns the Jukebox Bar and Restaurant in Cleveland, Ohio. So if you like great food and great drinks, swing on by the Jukebox Bar and Restaurant. And Alex says, The Ritual is a British horror film that follows four friends who take a hiking trip into a Swedish forest and encounter an ancient evil. The film was written by Joe Barton, who adapted the 2011 novel The Ritual by Adam Neville. Barton is best known for the crime series Jiri Haji, the science fiction thriller The Lazarus Project, and the 2017 romantic drama film My Days of Mercy, about the daughter of a man on death row who falls in love with a woman on the opposing side of her family's political cause. My Days of Mercy is set in an unnamed small town in Ohio. Cool. I don't think I've heard about that. Did you hear about that film? No, I have not. Okay. Yeah. But I have heard of unnamed small town in Ohio. Oh, yeah. We've all been there. I've been there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> cool. Great. Great connection. Thanks, Alex. Yeah, thank you, Alex. All right, Brian. Uh, with that, do you want to start talking about the plots, hit the spoilers, and uh, review the film? Let's do it. Okay, cool. Hey, I just heard a, a weird noise, though, from the attic. Do you mind if I check it out really quick and give you a call back? Yeah, you'd better. Yeah, I know. All right. I'll be right back. Okay. Hey, Brian. Sorry about that. I, I'm back. Yeah, well, what was up there, man? Oh, super weird. I, I found my neighbor uh, naked on the floor of, of our attic, and uh, I, was, I was really worried that he was uh, in some kind of trance or something and like praying to some kind of demonic figure, but turns out he was just doing hot yoga and liked the our, our attic floor for it, so I think it dodged yeah. a bullet there. He rises. He does rise, yeah. <laughs> you got you got a smart neighbor. <laughs> I know. He knows where to go. What do you, what do you yeah, get I naked? make friends with that guy. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, copy some of those poses. All right, so this movie kicks off with five friends, Hutch, Dom, Phil, Luke, Rob, and they're having a discussion about places to go for their next group trip. Unfortunately, later that evening, Rob and Luke find themselves in the middle of a robbery at a convenience store, and Luke hides while Rob is killed by the robbers. Um, That's funny, his name is Rob and he gets killed by robbers. The film then jumps six months into the future, where the group of four friends, in honor of their lost friend, are now hiking through Sweden. Uh, what did you think of this opening? They were robbed of Rob too soon by those robbers. They really were. <laughs> uh, I thought it was a really good opening because, again, very naturalistic dialogue, like we mentioned, with maybe a David Bruckner trademark if there is one. Felt like these were all, felt like authentic friends. And then this moment in the convenience store or liquor store or whatever it is, was pretty brutal and tense. And it's just shot and timed out really well. Like you see Luke grab the neck of a liquor bottle, like, okay, he's about to do something. And then it just doesn't go down that way. And it's uh, a brutal bludgeoning mm-hmm. uh, not feels very real what did you think yeah i agree i agree i think that like comes pretty quick like five minutes into the movie and uh they've done a good job of like setting you up within the context of uh the friendship dynamic which feels very natural and like not forced at all and you're just kind of like yeah eavesdropping in on this conversation and then yeah that that kind of violence is, is really uh shocking at this point and and you're right like the sound effects and uh the, the blood and and uh, gore you see here is uh 
yeah, very real and, and shocking. I, th- I think this is also like a very common uh, trope for a horror film. Yes. It's like this kind of grief opening, which I don't know. I, f- I feel like we haven't, uh, unless, I don't know if you consider the Exorcist Believer and it uh, had this, but I feel like it's been a while since I've seen a movie that like starts with like this, a, a tragedy and then like goes from there. It is such a trope. And yeah, as you mentioned, The Descent does that very, very tropally. Yeah. But I don't necessarily think it's a bad trope, but it is very common. Yeah. And, and it's done well here. And yeah, I'm glad you mentioned they really accomplish a lot in terms of getting letting you know the friendship dynamic in like less than five minutes. Right. Without it feeling forced. Yeah. Yeah. They, I think they got to get a report between them. Good. Yeah. Good. Good jokes. Um, hey, movies that start like this, do you automatically start to put them into that grief porn horror? Was it grief porn? Is that what we called it? Grief misery? Misery porn? Yeah. <laughs> any, <laughs> any, kind of, this? <laughs> any kind of negative word before porn works. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Does uh, it kind of yeah, porn? yeah. I was calling it misery porn, but I kind of, I think I've kind of hijacked that title from a different type of genre. But mm. yeah. Grief horror is what it's commonly called among normal people. Yeah, so would you categorize this film because of this opening as that? No, I wouldn't. The grief is an undercurrent, and it is in a lot of movies, but it's not the uh, it's not the whole film. Like, there's other stuff going on. I mean, there's an important part of the film. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, think I guess it, my definition for that was a character starts off pretty starts off miserable. Something happens to make them even more miserable, and then it ends even more miserably. <laughs> oh, God, okay. I think this movie comes close to following those guidelines, but not really. Yeah, breaks a little bit away from that path. Sure. Okay, that's fair. So now they're headed back, but Dom injures his meniscus. So the group decides to go off trail and cut through this forest to get back quicker. As they go through the forest, though, they start to notice some weird things like markings on the trees, and then there's this elk that's hanging from a tree and split open. Uh, It starts to rain, and they take shelter in this deserted cabin in which the attic has this shrine with a body made out of twigs and antlers on it. Uh, So, yeah, they're pretty certain some kind of witchcraft stuff has has happened here at some point. Uh, Despite the creepiness of this cabin, the group decides to take shelter here and sleep and spend the night there. Uh, but that night, Luke has a dream that he's back in the convenience store or liquor store watching his friend Rob get killed. And he wakes up and he's in the woods outside the cabins and he has these wounds in his chest. He rushes back into the cabin and everyone's a mess. Uh, Hutch has peed himself. Dom is kind of screaming in the corner for his wife and kind of out of it. And Phil is naked upstairs in the attic and praying to a statue. And all of them seem pretty disoriented and not sure, like, what's going on. Uh, what do you think of this sequence? Very scary uh, and effective. And this is where I think the film becomes, like, if we've started a la The Descent, it's now become a bit like The Blair Witch Project. Ah, uh, okay, yeah. So that is my second of the three movies. Okay. But, um... I thought this was a really effective scene. It was creepy. And I like what they do throughout the movie where they keep flashing back to that liquor store and they make it a little different. Like they kind of organically tie it into the woods. Like in this flashback, the liquor store had a 
dirt floor with like twigs and leaves everywhere, which is a small thing, but it just really fit the style of this movie really well. It was cool. Yeah. It brings that memory into like the current setting that he's in. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I, th- I think it's really neat. Uh, yeah, I, I agree. This, this was a, a fun like sequence and like w- with like the creepiness that's been building, it's cool for them, them to like just all have like kind of a, a night that just like freaks them out. Um, but I don't, I don't know. I also feel like we missed out on some scares cause we're so like embedded in Luke. Uh, we don't really like, we see the aftermath of like, yeah, one guy w- wakes up and he's like, Peter's pants. Like that's, that's scary. I'm sure like what he saw was probably scarier though. Right. Than us seeing him with his pants speed. Yeah, he was probably, like, dreaming that he drank a bunch of lemonade and was peeing in his dream. <laughs> yeah, I would have liked to see that. Been there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's a great one. Uh, but, yeah, obviously they're all, like, kind of disturbed here. But then I, I think the other issue for me here is uh, basically they, they continue on on their journey. And uh, I think, I don't know why, like, the four of them don't want to talk about, like, what happened the night before, even though, like, it was really bizarre. Um, and Luke, I think, tries to, like, get them like hey maybe we should talk about what happened but i think it's hutch that kind of shuts it down so it's like the you saw something scary obviously happened to the four of them but they kind of just like push on without really addressing it does that bother you at all or does that seem like it's fitting with their character i think it's kind of fitting and i think that this movie could kind of be viewed as an examination of male tendencies and or human tendencies in general this is a bit unique you know the descent was all women And we don't often see a horror movie with an entire male cast who goes through hell together and suffers together. One of them pees his pants even. Like, we don't really see a whole lot of movies where all the terror experienced lies strictly in the men. Like, Mm, there is no terrified woman in this movie. Right. Yeah, no final girl. Yeah. 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 So I think it's a unique movie in that we're experiencing fear through them. Interesting that you brought up we don't get to experience the fear through the other guy's eyes. But yeah, the movie is very much through Luke's point of view. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, he's he's our main character. Uh, I mean, it, 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 we see some of the creepiness of the cabin, which I, I think that the, the set design there was really cool, and that attic with the shrine is, is really cool. Um, but yeah, that's a really good point about uh, not seeing two movies like this. Like, Deliverance comes to mind of, of like a movie of like a bunch of like dudes on a journey being faced with horrors. Sure, and, right, and you could you could lump that into the the name dropping of movies that this this takes uh, yeah takes a page out of its book, but what was I gonna say? Man, I, I'm really interested in that now. I'm thinking like this movie does have like an omniscient camera, I think, mm-hmm. or does it really only see the things that Luke sees? I think it is Luke because. Uh, yeah, I mean, it starts basically on him. He's, like, the first one we see, like, opening his tent. Uh, we're seeing, like, his flashbacks of the night at the liquor store. Uh, so, yeah, as much as it tries to keep us scattered across... No, I, and even, like, the nighttime sequences, a lot of it's from Luke's perspective. Yeah, we right? don't really see what happens to any... If Luke can't see it, we don't really see it. Yeah, right, right, yeah. Interesting. It is. It Very is. much Luke's story. It is. Um, And uh, anyway, back to that, like, how did I feel about them, like going through this and not talking about it much, both Luke and Phil, who kind of seem to be painted as the more sensitive ones, they want to talk about it, what just happened. Like, they're like, can we please talk about what just happened back there? And both Dom and Hutch are shutting it down. Mm. So, okay, 
They're kind of the like more assertive, cockier ones, Dom and Hutch. Yeah, got it. And so, you, like, you think that's believable that like this group of four, you've got like two guys who are just gonna kind of shut that conversation down and just be like, let's keep moving forward. I think it's believable. I think that this movie could probably test the viewers, um, the part of the brain that's like, why did you just make that decision? Because there are many times in the movie where they make a decision that doesn't make sense. Yeah. I mean, it does in the context of the movie. I guess you could reason it out, but you don't bushwhack in a foreign country. <laughs> like, really, that's, that's a bad a, idea. Huh. I wouldn't know that. I, I would assume, I, I thought they had sound logic. Like, uh, yeah, as the crow flies. Let's cut through here. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you don't know what's in those woods or what the terrain's like. It could just be like a straight drop. Yeah, I guess. Um, but then also, I mean, I guess you could have a topographical map. So that, But even so, it's just yeah. way too risky. Okay. Also, the whole thing about Rob is that he wouldn't give his wedding ring. Yeah. Which a guy's wedding ring is like a couple hundred bucks. Yeah. And just that was very stupid. He'd already given them his wallet. Right. Yeah, that part seemed like unnecessarily like oh, uh, trying to throw in like some kind of principle or emotion there. Uh, yeah, like a forced sentimental thing. Yeah, yeah, it didn't make sense. Okay, so now they continue their group or their journey through the forest. They are unsettled by the events of the night before, but yeah, aren't, aren't really talking about it. Uh, there is some underlying tension now that's like breaking up since, uh, or that's coming up now since they're like on day two of like a journey that they thought would only take like a day or so and yeah they they had the night before that they had so uh one of the friends i think dom brings up that luke is somewhat they all kind of hold the belief that luke has some responsibility for what happened to their friend rob years ago or not years ago but six months ago uh since luke chose to hide in the liquor store versus confront the robbers before they killed rob uh, this is guilt that we know Luke has been carrying with him. Uh, he saw it in the dream the night before. Um, Luke also begins, is beginning to hear noises. I think at the cabin, he heard some noises in the woods. Uh, he's th- He keeps thinking he sees something in the woods, uh, which kind of like resembles a huge animal or something off in the distance. Uh, so he's getting a little spooked. That night when they break for camp, uh, the group wakes up in the middle of the night and uh, hear Hutch screaming and they come out and find that he's been taken away into the night and all they can hear is his screaming they don't know where he is Uh, the next day they wander off and they find his body uh, which similar to the elk that they saw before is hung up in a tree and torn open Uh, what did you think here very very like Blair Witchy yeah very much so and uh, pretty pretty gnarly to see Hutch displayed up like that kind of gutted yeah that looks really cool um one thing i think that happens here that i'm wondering how much weight this has so hutch tells luke before they go to sleep here like hey why don't you tomorrow morning take off early and run far ahead of us get to the lodge and like get help and bring it back for us and uh luke like agrees to do that and so that's the plan like he's getting ready to like abandon the group (laughs) Do you think that is a parallel to like uh, the his action at the liquor store? I feel like maybe Hutch was like I couldn't tell if Hutch was being honest. Like, hey, these two aren't holding up well, and like somebody needs to go up ahead. Why doesn't I think it was just logic? Like, these two aren't doing well. Somebody should go up ahead and check things out. It's got to be one of us. And you and Dom just nearly got into a fist fight. So. 
Mm-hmm. Why don't you separate from Dom and be the one to do that? To run ahead. Okay. I, I thought it was more kind of like he was giving Luke an out and Luke was taking it to show like maybe he still has that characteristic that is what like he holds himself, uh, uh, yeah, like feels guilty about for like what happened at the liquor store. Like he was ready to bail and like just go forward to uh, find help and like kind of abandon them. But, oh, like here you can be a coward again if you yeah, need to be. Yeah, exactly. Because I, I don't know. I don't feel like it's a coward to go ahead alone. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, I, I think so. His actions in the liquor store. Would you, do you think that was like cowardly? Because I'm not. I'm not sure. Like how much blame like we're supposed to have as audience on like yeah, Luke did the wrong thing by hiding. Yeah, I think it's probably up for interpretation among the audience, and maybe even a uh, a discussion of masculinity. And the conceptions of it among, from what the audience thinks of what he should have done. Yeah, right. Yeah, I like that it kind of leaves that out there. Uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's like also the, kind of ambiguous because you don't know, like, if he was like, no, I'm just going to hide and never do anything because he kind of had the bottle gripped. Mm-hmm. He looked like he was thinking about what to do and then before he could make a decision yeah. that happened. Yeah. And then he was kind of like, it almost looked like he shook his head at Rob, like, don't give him the ring. Oh. Or was it like, no, don't be stupid, give him the ring? I think it would have been the don't be stupid thing. Or don't acknowledge that I'm over here. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot that could be left up to interpretation in that scene. Sure. Yeah, yeah, very ambiguous, uh, as most robberies probably are. I feel like communication is always a little confusing during those. Well, so, when you're robbing a rob, things just are inherently confusing. <laughs> exactly. You're, you're trying to remember his Who did name. what to who? Yeah. <laughs> We're the robbers, but your name's Rob. <laughs> How does this work again? <laughs> so he tried to steal from them, and then they hit him with a bat. Yeah, exactly. He wanted their rings. Uh, yeah, I, I think that's maybe one of the strengths of this film is uh, there is, like, for the audience, it's hard to pass judgment on Luke. We know he's carrying this grief. We know his friends have, like, these underlying perceptions about, like, what Luke could have done in that situation, but they weren't there, so obviously they're uh, misguided, too. And that that's in, in this scene, I think, too, yeah, it could be either uh, Hutch just being smart and saying one guy has to run ahead, why don't you do it? Or it could have been uh, another portrayal of showing Luke's readiness to abandon his friends. Uh, but yeah, in this case, maybe for like a better cause. Potentially. Or it could have been like, this is your chance to uh, be brave and prove that you're not a coward. Oh, like go off on your own as being brave? Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Go ahead, ahead up by yourself in the woods when we know there's something <laughs> terrifying okay. out there. Yeah, show us you're brave. Yeah, exactly. I think that's, yeah, it would take bravery. Yeah. I think there's also a lot of nuance to the the friends and how they feel about what Luke did. Like, really, it was Dom only who was kind of making passive-aggressive comments the whole time about, you know, Luke maybe did something wrong. And then Hutch took him aside and was like, look, dude, nobody thinks like that you that this was your fault. And then later in the film, when Dom confronts him, the other guys, Hutch and Phil, are kind of strangely silent. So you right. start to think, oh, maybe they do harbor some some feelings that Luke wasn't aggressive enough or that Luke is uh, does deserve some of the blame for Rob's death. Yeah, that's, that's the feeling I was getting, is like Dom was the only one to like uh, voice it and they're the other ones didn't necessarily like shut him down at that point. Like there was, uh, there might be like this underlying feeling that uh, Luke could have done more. Yeah, right. And Luke was really the one. Everyone else wanted to go home. They gave us the impression that 
Luke was still kind of in drinking mode and everyone else had kind of grown up and yeah. moved on with their lives a bit more than Luke. So he was the one that wanted to go into the liquor store in the first place. Really, in my mind, Rob is 100% responsible for his own death. <laughs> Just I agree. take off the take couple off hundred dollar ring, yeah, toss exactly. it their way and yeah. be on with your day. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I wonder if Luke told them the, that part of the story or not. <laughs> like, he had an out. He could easily just hand the but ring. guys. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that guy made a really dumb uh, decision there all right well uh where are we now yeah morale is pretty low now for the group uh for the three of them that are left luke's hopes light up though when he sees some fires burning off in the distance but before you can tell the group a large creature plucks phil off the ground in the dark into the air and he disappears uh we don't really see much of the creature we just see uh phil go uh up in the air and disappear luke and dom now make a run for it and they see Phil impaled on a tree and dead. And they come across this tiny village where they stumble into an old cabin. In this cabin, they are taken hostage by the locals, uh, which consists of an elderly woman and uh, some other gentlemen. Uh, these captors tie them up in the basements. They see the wounds on Luke's body. And seeing those, they give him some water. Uh, but they take Dom upstairs where Luke can hear him screaming while something is growling. And then Luke is, or Dom is brought back down later and, uh, tells Luke that he's going to be killed and that, uh, hopefully Luke can make it out of there. Is it weird that we never learn what's, what happened to Dom up there? Yeah. Or the significance of the marks on the chest. Cause the old woman shows Luke like, Hey, I've got that same mark like bloody mark on my chest too. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, you're getting the water, Dom's getting no water, and we take him upstairs and show him what for. Another situation where we don't go up there with Dom as the viewer. The, right. the camera stays downstairs with Luke as he hears the chaos upstairs. Yeah. I think in that scene, it makes it scarier to not know what Dom went through. And just hear the sounds. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I agree. I, I think maybe even back in that original cabin, it's scarier that we don't know exactly what went on with the other guys. Yeah, leaves more to the imagination. Yeah. That's true. I just think in both of those instances, it's so weird that, uh, like, if that had happened, I feel like as soon as Dom came back, Luke would have been like, well, what, what happened up to you up there? What did you see? Uh, what was it? And, like, there would have been some kind of conversation about it uh, versus just, like, uh, Dom giving him the speech about, like, oh, you know why I had that dream the other night? It was, it was like, Gail or something. My, or my yeah. wife. So, uh, yeah. yeah, that that part seemed a little unnatural. That it And was. he tells, Dom tells Luke at this point, like, you get a chance, like, just run. Don't stop. Keep going. Mm-hmm. And I'm kind of wondering, is that in a way Dom forgiving Luke for what happened in the liquor store? Like, oh. it's the just save yourself. Like, yeah. is that the closest thing to forgiveness that that he's going to get from Dom, or is it just completely unrelated? Interesting. Because um, if you're Luke and you're thinking, okay, Dom's telling me, like, it's okay to just worry about myself in this situation. Yep. Could that alleviate a little bit of your guilt about how things went down in the liquor store? Yeah. From the person who's making you feel the most guilty about it. Yeah. Is that how that how guilt works? I feel like if uh, you get if, if someone's mad at you for something and then they tell you to do more of it, uh, you don't think like, oh, okay, now uh, they must forgive me. Um, you know, like it, like if I peed on you and you're like, oh, yeah, why don't you go ahead and pee on me again? I mean, obviously you'd be pissed, right? And, and then I peed on you again. 
pissed. Oh man, this is a robbers <laughs> yeah. robbing rob yeah. situation again. I'm pissed <laughs> that you pissed. Yeah. Did we bring uh, yeah our friend piss into the situation? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we got our buddy named piss. Yeah, I, I I don't know if that that's how forgiveness works. Is like uh, him being like, hey, that thing I got mad at you for, uh, do it again, and this time I I won't. Uh, I'm giving you permission to do it. Versus, uh, I don't know. Like you think he was like finally like sympathizing with Luke and like telling Luke like I understand if you need to do that. Yeah, I mean, first off, I want to commend you on just a horrible example <laughs> when examining just, what guilt is like of peeing on somebody. That's the only way I'd feel guilt. That just popped into your head real quick, <laughs> peeing on me. Yeah, huh? what would piss Brian off? Oh, pissing on him. <laughs> <laughs> would have taken you a long time to think of the three movies this movie yeah. is most closely tied to. The idea of peeing on me was Came right on the way. tip of your tongue. Yeah, exactly. In a way, yeah, maybe, like... You get in a fight with somebody, like if me and my wife got in an argument and then I was like, you know what? Yeah, just do it. Like, go ahead and do it. It could be a way of me saying like, hey, I overreacted. I see now I was wrong. Go ahead. Oh, yeah. I guess. Yeah, that's true. My wife does not pee on me, everybody. (laughs) Yeah. I guess it's all about the tone because another way could be like to see like, yeah, it's just a sarcastic kind of like, all right, yeah, go ahead and do it again or whatever. But uh, yeah, yeah, it's interesting though. The idea that like him, him, him giving the speech is like maybe him recognizing that Luke, uh, it was the right thing to do. It's like hired her to run. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Up for interpretation. Yep. Yeah. Which is which is cool. The movie uh, like has that ambiguity to it. Yeah. Uh, so then uh, Dom is taken outside for a sacrifice, and now we see this uh, monster from the woods finally emerge. And first, Dom sees. Uh, has a vision of his wife, Gail, uh, revealing, uh, yeah, coming up to him. Uh, but then, uh, it's revealed that it's not Gail, his wife. It's actually a siege monster and it kills Dom. Uh, one of the captors who happens to speak English explains to Luke that this monster is this demon named Modor, Motor, and that it has chosen Luke to survive due to the pain Luke has already endured and that he can now join the rest of the villagers in worshiping this demon and live forever or something without pain. And I think, yeah, those wounds are kind of like an indication that the demon has marked you uh, as someone that, like, uh, has experienced a lot of pain in life and and you get to survive and worship me, right? Yeah, yeah. I think he's a... The name of the creature is called a Jotun. J-O-T-U-N-N, which is a, a bastard offspring of Loki that they... Yeah, worship. Okay. But I think the Jotun have been featured in, like, Marvel Universe-type stories. Oh, like with Loki, the character Loki? Yeah, it's like it's like a legit mythical creature slash god. Yeah, um, like Nordic or something? Yeah, yeah, I think it's a Nordic, Nordic mythology. Interesting. Cool. Uh, what did you think of, uh, like, us finally seeing the monster and, uh, yeah, these villagers? Well, this is... We kind of buried the lead a little bit here because we didn't want to spoil that this was a monster movie and a cult movie at the same time in the opening half of the podcast. But I think this movie's creature design is top tier, man. I think this monster looks incredible. And you get to see its weird shape throughout, and it's creepy. And the way way they trickle it in throughout the movie is pretty cool. Then when you finally see its face... It's a cut from Dom seeing Gail's face to the creature's face. And it's just like, whoa, there it is. 
and it almost looks like it's got the face of the Grim Reaper. Mm, yeah. But it's got like antlers and a giraffe or horse type body and humanish arms. Mm-hmm. It's wacky and it looks really good. Yeah, it's pretty imaginative. I, I really like it. I don't think I've seen anything like that. And it's got like, yeah, the eyes on it are, are just like kind of like, yeah, way inside. It's like uh, in, in this darkness, which which looks awesome. Uh, yeah, and like glowing red eyes. By the way, background info I didn't mention up top, uh, the creature designer is named Keith Thompson and he worked with Bruckner on The Night House and Hellraiser. And he's also done concept art on films like Crimson Peak and Pacific Rim. And he's done creature design on the VHS 94 and 85 movies, cool. among many other films. So wow. props to Keith. that guy. Yeah, that's yeah. great. Uh, yeah, this is an awesome looking monster. It's kind of mind blowing. And, and it, it's cool to like finally see it here. Uh, I agree. Like the, the, the glimpses we get of it like uh, before, there's that one shot where like they're walking through the woods and then, like, you just see, see it, like, kind of, like, move really quickly in the background, like, between, like, two trees. That's, like, one of my favorite shots in, in this film. Did you, you catch that one? Yeah. There are so many good through-the-trees type shots in this movie. Yeah. Uh, excellent landscape photography, and they really make use of the woods to make make you wonder, like, what's out there? Where's it coming from? Yep. Am I going to see it? It's it's well done. Yeah. Kind of, kind of like an Invisible Man thing, where you're like, yeah, you're, you're focused like on the dark here. Here, you're like focused on the trees, like between the, the the trees to try to see like what's what's out there and what's moving. Really exactly. Cool. Yeah. Uh, so Luke manages to break his hands free of the harness in the basement, and he escapes the basement and runs up to the attic. In the attic, he finds a bunch of mummified bodies that are praying to the stick figure uh, on the altar, similar to the one they saw in the cabin. And uh, it's, it's kind of cool because uh, at first these are just dead bodies, but uh, before he opens the door, he hears like them making a lot of noise. He opens the door and they're all, all the noise goes away and they're all still. And then uh, as he's in there, they kind of start to move a little bit. I, I thought that was a really cool trick. Do you, you like that? Very cool. He hears this chanting outside the door, opens it up to a bunch of yeah dead bodies, and the score completely drops from the mix when this happens. Then, yeah, he burns them. And they shriek as they burn. It's just yeah. This is a fucking cool scene. Yeah, really cool. Uh, yeah, design here and like the the sequencing of this is a lot of fun. So sound design across the board in this movie. Sound design and sound effects really yeah. excellent. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so yeah, he lights them up on fire and he gets a rifle and shoots one of his captors and uh, escapes the cabin. Uh, this upsets the monster in the woods who proceeds to start attacking and killing everyone, all the villagers. Luke runs through the woods, and again, he's seeing visions of the liquor store guiding him away from the village. And uh, yeah, like like you mentioned, again, it's like integrated into the forest where like uh, he's seeing the, what do you call those lights? The fluorescent? Like the uh, fluorescent overheads? Yeah, yeah. right, like leading uh, a path through the woods. So uh, he's running down there, but the, the monster corners him and catches him. And uh, he faces off with Motor one last time. Uh, Motor kind of like brings Luke down to his knees, almost like in a final attempt to make Luke uh, worship him or worship uh, Motor. Uh, but Luke grabs an axe, slices into or like cuts into Motor. The demon uh, chases him again, but this time Luke makes it out past the tree line into a clearing. And we see the demon can't escape the tree line and it roars at him from the forest and Luke roars back and the film ends there. Hey, why do you think the demon couldn't leave the forest? 
That might have something to do with the mythology around the Jotun as a Forest entity, Hunt. but I'm not totally sure. Okay, cool. Yeah. I also wondered if like Luke stepping out of the woods is symbolism for him stepping out of his depression and guilt. Right. And if the whole reason that Jotun was interested in him was his pain, then it might make sense that the Jotun is confined to the woods of which symbolize guilt, pain, depression, whatever. Yeah, right. And like uh, Luke, uh, his like final scream or yelling is like him releasing that uh, pain, grief, depression. Yeah, right. Yeah. Right. But th- what's this going to do for his guilt? He had this incident where he went into a place with his buddy, came out the only one alive, and now he goes into the woods with three guys, and again comes out the only one alive. Yeah, that's what I'm wondering, because it, it is like, a, that's definitely like the, his character journey, right? Like, he's carrying this guilt with him throughout the whole film, and somehow, like, through this ordeal, he has, like, uh, faced it, but, uh, yeah, you're right, like, uh, is he, how is he free from that? Uh, and, like, did he like show? Did he prove to himself that like he tried to save, like Dom or others, and that's why like he feels like uh, he did his part, and and he can like kind of rest now, or uh, yeah, what what would make him feel better about that? I don't know. I I I don't want to say I wish he had saved Dom because I love Dom's death scene. Yeah, but I feel like his character arc would have made. A- a bit more sense or been more satisfying if he had saved one of them because then yeah, exactly. he could truly be over his guilt but now all he's probably got is even more guilt yeah I know that trip like next year is just gonna it's gonna be like he has to go to four places now one, one it kind of reminds me of the rumination in the Halloween trilogy of what final girldom is like you know the movie ends and we think oh she made it she survived but then it's like, actually, she just went through the worst thing <laughs> any human's ever gone through and watched all of her friends die, and she has to live with that the rest of her life. Oh, like, yeah. Sure. That is Luke's situation here. He's not he's not out of the woods. Right, right. Pardon the pun. Yeah. Uh, so it's a, it's a bit unsatisfying, and I almost wish they had either had him save one of his buddies or had it be like this. And had it ended a bit more on a depressing note instead of him kind of screaming uh, victoriously right. at the monster. Maybe it's not victorious. It may just be a general catharsis. But that gives you a notion of victory. And yeah, great. Good job on the win of staying alive. Yeah, you did it. But considering the whole theme was his guilt over a friend he may have let die, what's that going to do now? He, he exactly. quote unquote let three other guys die. Yeah, I almost feel like they forgot that part here at the end that, like, uh, yeah, this whole movie, they've been showing Luke as someone who's carrying that guilt, and then, like, this, like, last, like, five, ten minutes just becomes, like, a survival movie of escaping a, a monster, like, the, uh, yeah, it's it, it's really strange that um, it doesn't kind of, like, circle around back to uh, that initial guilt that he had. I wondered if its way of circling around back to that was that the monster, instead of just catching him and killing him... He picks him up, he drops him down and forces Luke to kneel mm-hmm. in front of him. Like, he does it a couple times. Like, yeah, I, I want you to worship me. And it's like he's forcing Luke to be passive, and Luke is refusing to be passive. Uh, so I don't know if there's symbolism there of like, hey, I'm no longer being the passive 
person in a situation of tragedy, like I'm standing up for myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I, again, you know, he's running away, which is not that different than hiding in the first one. And I'm not saying that either of those is the wrong decision to make, but for his character arc, it's just, uh, it muddles it a little bit. Yeah. Actually that, that, that brings up something cause, uh, the monster, I, I think he's told that you can, if you worship this demon, you uh, you can you don't have to feel pain or something, right? Doesn't that woman tell him that at, at the basement? And so I, I wonder if he's like being uh, presented here with the option repeatedly, like worship me and your I'll take your pain away, and him like refusing to do that uh, is him like choosing to face the pain uh, and and like stop running away from it potentially. Yeah, maybe his victory is, like, I'm living with the guilt, and I choose to live with the guilt. Right, yeah. It's it's less, like, way buried down in me now, and I'm facing I'm screaming about it now. BT-dubs, that guilt just got multiplied. <laughs> it's going to suck a lot more now. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that's tough. Uh, so, yeah, what would you think of the film? I mean, aside from that criticism, I think it's a great movie it's a lot of fun it's just interesting that they've added all these layers the third movie i tack on is the wicker man ah yes like they're in the woods and you know you don't for the first few minutes you don't really know what's happening then all these symbols make you think okay like some people are out here then there's a monster too so it's just like a monster movie on top of a cult movie is really interesting and uh they mine both for pretty creepy effect. Yeah. Wait, so you said three movies, but I, I mean, Descent, I guess, because like this one has a monster in it. So do you think that's yeah. like from the Descent? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'd say like the monster and the guys on an outdoor adventure after something horrible happens to their friend group is the Descent. Yep. You know, being in the woods and witnessing all this stuff that you don't know the source of is the Blair Witch. And then, yeah, the cult is Wicker Man. Yeah. Screams in the night. Uh, yeah, the cult, uh, I, I don't know how scared uh, we are of the cult in this film. Uh, I mean, yeah, the cult aspect, definitely from Wicker Man, right? And, and like a lot of those wood uh, shrines and stuff. But uh, I, I can't tell how, if, if the cult like plays a huge role here, except for like keeping them in the basement for like 10 minutes. Well, yeah, but you also have some creepy moments where, you know, Dom gets taken upstairs, we hear chanting. And then that moment where he walks into the room with the mummified bodies chanting and shrieking when he sets them on fire. Oh, yeah. That's one of the creepiest moments in the whole movie, which you wouldn't have if the cult didn't exist. Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, yeah, that was was a really cool scene. Oh, man, the creature, there's an awesome shot of the creature backlit by a fire as it holds that woman's lifeless body. Yeah. And it's just like one of the better single shots I've seen in a movie in a while. It's like the cover of a metal album or something. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's, a, that's a great display of, of the creature design. Um, what did you think of the movie? Yeah, I, I, I think same. Like, a really great story uh, and does, like, a lot of things right. And the production value is really good. The, the score, the scenery, everything comes together so well. But, yeah, for me, it was, like, uh, the shortcoming is, I think, somewhat of what you're calling out. Uh, there's a little bit of a lack of originality where, like, we've seen all these elements in other films before. But I, I feel like we've talked about this before where, like, 
maybe you're bringing different parts of different films together, but in doing so, you're creating something like unique and that's like worthy of like some originality maybe. I think so. That's what I've been arguing is, yeah, once you get mash up a few movies together, you, you bring in together enough of the elements and it becomes original, even if it's taking pages out of other movies' books. Yeah, right, right, hard exactly. To, hard to make a fully original movie at this time <laughs> in human culture. I guess, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I think one area, though, uh, where movies can be more original sometimes is the character journey. And uh, this character journey felt like, yeah, journey we've been on in other films with other characters. And uh, I don't know. I, I can't tell if it's because you've got, like, four guys that you're hanging out with the whole time. Um, or, like, yeah, it already starts in a place where they're pretty familiar with each other and there's, like, a, a set, like, character dynamic uh, between these characters. Uh, but we don't really, like, dive too deep into, like, the other three characters, do we, outside of Luke? Yeah, we don't know that much about them, other aside from how they interact with the rest of the guys. Yeah. Right. Which I think might be enough. Yeah, I guess. Uh, it, it, yeah, it is enough, especially if you're like you're, we're all about Luke. Uh, even their deaths, though, like we don't see too much of it. Like we, we see like the after effects of their deaths. I think Dom's is like the first on screen kill we actually see happen. Um, yeah, maybe. Yeah, we usually just stumble upon the bodies. Yeah. Oh, we, get, we see Phil get picked up. Mm. Oh, we might. Take... Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, I think yeah, you yeah. might be right that Dom's is the first on screen one. Yeah. So, so you don't count Rob. Oh, right. At the like at the liquor store, yeah. Uh so yeah, that, that, that's kind of surprising, but I, I guess it keeps you kind of grounded in Luke and yeah, I think at the end of the day this is his story. So, um what about uh the title, the ritual? Do you think what do, what do you think that ties to? Is that the the ritual of worshiping this demon? Yeah, I think they were essentially the ritual was sacrificing Dom to the creature. And that was kind of the climax of the movie. Okay, got it. Do you think they're paying... Is there a parallel between that ritual and this ritual of friends, like a, an annual trip that they do together? Could, could you call that a ritual? Sure, yeah. Yeah. I, w- I wonder if the title is, is playing to both of those. Like, on one hand, it could be something that you do with a group of people. Uh, on the other hand, it could be a, de- a demon that you worship. Or it could be the ritual that Luke has where every six months he lets one or more of his friends die. <laughs> I know he's got to make like four friends in the next six months. He's like, I gotta, yeah, I gotta do this quick. I got six yeah. months to start this from the top. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Damn. Uh, what else? Uh, any, anything else you want to call out about the film? I mean, we touched on it a little bit already, but if you're looking for originality, that creature design is very original in my book. Yeah, I agree. That's yeah. That, that's a standout, and and it's cool, like how it's like so buried until like the last 20 minutes then like you finally see it so like uh you don't really have a chance to like get tired of seeing it it's like pretty awesome it like stands on its hind legs at one moment and kind of changes changes shape so that it looks exactly like that twig god that phil was worshiping naked oh yeah in that cabin and that's a really cool moment um it's not every day that a horror movie can eventually show you the entire monster and still have it be really scary. Like, mm-hmm. I would liken it to Alien for that reason. It it eventually gives you the whole picture of the monster and what they look like, and it's still scary. It's still a scary yeah. monster. <laughs> I know. That's always a gamble. 
uh, do you remember the first time you saw this? I feel like I remember there was some uh, ambiguity around, like, you don't know this is a monster movie until you hit that last act, uh, and you're, like, wondering what's, like, happening to them in the woods. Uh, do, you, do you, like, watching it this time, do you, do you remember any of that kind of feeling, or do you think it's, like, pretty clear once they start seeing these, like, dead animals hanging and stuff that this is a monster film? Yeah, it's hard to know when you... It's hard to put yourself back in time when you already know, but... There are pretty clear hints. You hear the growling in the woods. You see, like, a monstrous hand on a tree. But at the same time, it's so long before you really see the monster. And there's also these symbols. So you're like, well, what is going on? You don't really expect a monster and a cult. Right. And I think that's where, as a (laughs) first-time viewer, your mind gets pretty blown. Sure. Yeah, that both of those exist here in these woods. Yep. Well, cool. Do you think it maybe got repetitive at all? Like, um, it's only an hour and 34 minutes, but before they see the monster, mm-hmm. I couldn't tell if it was repetitive or not. I was just kind of trying to grasp at straws for why I am not going all the way to a five on this one. Yeah. Uh, they are in the woods for a long time, and a lot of it, it feels like a little, like, scares, like, building uh, and maybe, like, not moving fast enough. Like, uh, yeah, we get it. There's, like, creepy things on trees. Now there are creepy things in a cabin. Uh, we still aren't seeing, like, the monster, and it's just kind of following them for a while, and we keep, like, thinking that something's out there, but we're, they're not showing it to us. So th- I, I think there is... Uh, this is an exercise in kind of holding back and then, like, coming in hard at the end. Uh, so I, I could see that having audiences feeling like this is taking too long maybe to get to its climax. And, and yeah. being repetitive then. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I, I feel like I might see that too. It's just like a tiny, tiny nitpick. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think it's it's them being a little bit restrained and in, in like building the atmosphere and suspense. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I, yeah. So I don't necessarily think it's a downside. Just, just something I was kind of toying with in my brain. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I think the flashbacks are done really well. Like how we said, they're integrated into the woods and the score. We haven't really talked about. I think it's a really solid Ben Lovett score. It it kind of goes back and forth, sounding like a big Hollywood score, and then having this really subtle tension and slightly abrasive moments in the music, kind of like a Colin Stetson score or something. Yeah, so, totally. Uh, very good score, in my opinion. Yeah, I liked it a lot, too. A lot of strings, orchestral, like, fits the setting really nicely. Yeah, yeah very tense. Yep. Cool. Uh, anything else? Or do you want to jump to the score? I think that's it. I don't think I'm ready for the score. Okay, cool. Um, well, then, how many hanging elk cut open down the middle would you give this one? I give it four out of five hanging elk cut open down the middle. I think realistic characters, excellent creature design, and some horrific surprises combined to make the ritual stand out as one of the better horror films of the 2010s. I do think maybe the only thing keeping me from going up to five is just... I want it to be a bit more thematically rich or have some other, something else going on with Luke's character arc. But Mm. I don't know exactly how to fix that in a way that would make me go all the way to five. But yeah, four. I never know whether, these past couple episodes, whether I need to justify (laughs) my not going to a five with negative comments 
Yeah. When I'm overall very up on the movie, or just leave it at that. Great movie, four out of five. Oh, four is really good. Yeah, I think you have to justify that too much. Uh, <laughs> uh, how about you? Yeah, I'm, I'm right there with you. Uh, four hanging elk that are cut open down the middle. Uh, and yeah, I think, yeah, my biggest pet peeve on this one is it's not bringing anything new to the table. But I think other than that, it, it delivers uh, some great scares, uh, awesome uh, scenery, set designs, and uh, monsters, and the characters are grounded, tight production, and a pretty explosive final act that uh, I think delivers on like the, uh, yeah, I guess what you call maybe slower pacing earlier on, I feel, I feel like the end kind of makes up for that. So sure, fun, a fun watch. Yeah, I could definitely see this. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. Uh, highlight of the 2010s. Yeah, really fun. I can definitely see it being five out of five for people and being a favorite. Yeah, it, it was a highlight of the 2010s for me. Yeah. And uh, glad it still holds up. Yeah, uh, I'm actually surprised uh, there's no talks of a sequel for this one, because uh, I, I don't know. Yeah, it seems like there's a whole like lore that could be explored with uh, the Jotun or whatever, or like yeah, th- this idea of like a, a monster living in, in the woods feels like it could uh, be used in other circumstances. Yeah, you could even do a prequel with like the woman whose ID they found in the woods or something oh, right. like that, or yeah, or the woman. I don't I don't know if that was supposed to be the same woman as the cultist who kind of explained everything to Luke. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I was wondering, like, uh, that seemed too convenient that, like, there was one woman in this village that spoke English. Yeah, I think it might have been that that tourist whose tent and ID they found. And I think she may have died, like, 30 years before, oh. but still looked young because of the whole eternal life thing. Yeah, yeah, interesting. What, what would you do in that situation? Would you go for the eternal life? Um... I think I'd probably try to make a run for it. I don't really want to live in that cabin with a bunch of creepy people for the rest <laughs> of, not only the rest of my life, but forever. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, uh, yeah, I, I don't know if that's the crew I would pick either. For, for no, yeah, yeah, not a great crew. <laughs> I don't know. It's cool. They had a record player, though, and everything. So, uh, I don't know. Maybe, maybe they had some fun stuff going on back there. Good, good, good board games. I don't know. Not sure what, what their day to day looks like. But, they yeah. they took Dom upstairs and played a quick board game, and those noises were his frustration <laughs> yeah, that he was exactly. losing. Oh God! <laughs> yeah, board plays. Damn it! Uh, but yeah, also, uh, so their their whole ritual is to sacrifice someone to uh, the demon. But so they gotta wait. Like, I, like how often are hikers coming through, bushwhacking through these woods uh, for them to do these sacrifices? Good question, man. I don't know. Yeah. I feel like that's got to be uh, far and few in between. Yeah. Stuff. Yeah. It can't happen that often. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, but it's a popular trail. I think it really is a real life popular trail, the King's Trail. Oh, cool. In Sweden? Yeah. Between Sweden and Norway. Okay. Cool. I like how they uh, called out the Appalachian, Appalachian Trail in the, in the beginning. They did oh. mention the Appalachian Trail, yeah. Yeah, which... Uh, Said it was like the AT, but with less hillbillies. <laughs> they, little did they know what they're in for. <laughs> uh, and uh, for listeners who haven't heard yet, Brian did the Appalachian Trail. Uh, what, like, uh, what year was it? That was like uh, 10 years ago? 12, oh, 11 2012, 11 years ago. Wow, yeah, yeah. yeah. Cool. Does this bring back any memories for you? Uh... <laughs> Of that time that you guys ran into that yeah. cult out there. Yeah, I got I got a few of my friends killed. Yeah. <laughs> other Living than that, that, good times. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, then uh, anything else? That's it, man. 
All right, cool. Well, that's going to be our discussion on the ritual. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. That'll help other people find our show. And we always appreciate the feedback. If you want to join our discussion, you can find our social links on horrormovieclub.com or shoot us an email at podcast at horrormovieclub.com. We'll announce next week's movie on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram in case you want to watch it before the next episode. We're also on Discord where we're chatting up uh we're chatting with a few other uh horror fans you can find the link to that community on our website our logo is done by amy may pop art you can check her out on etsy.com you can subscribe to our show by hitting the orange patreon button on our websites uh and for as little as a dollar a month you can get access to some bonus some fun bonus episodes bonus <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's uh that should be a neat term uh, and then until next time, if you're considering going somewhere and spending some time with your friends in the wilderness, maybe just go somewhere uh, that's a little bit more convenient like Vegas and just watch uh, the National Geographic channel for a little while to get your wilderness kick on and then uh, be in safety and, and not uh, run into any cults. Good so. point.